I'm glad to see you guys tonight. I really am. I'm glad to see this many people here tonight. It seems that our hopeful expectation was answered. But I want you to open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 52. And if you remember on Sunday, I quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones on revival. And he said, Revival above everything else is a glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the idea being that revival is centered in Christ's glory being seen and experienced and savored among his people once more. And I don't really know of another text in Scripture that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ more than the one that we're going to look at tonight. There are others that perhaps are on par, but none exceeds this text of Scripture. And it's a familiar one to us. Um, you know, I preached, it, I preached from it, I think, on Resurrection Sunday this year. But this classic text... really ought to inflame our hearts with praise and awe and gratitude and love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to look with me at Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13, and we're going to read all the way through to the end of Isaiah 53. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read the Word of God together tonight. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their eyes, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the mighty, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. You be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God, steadfast in your love and steadfast in your grace and your mercy, how worthy you are to be praised by your people. How worthy you are to be exalted and magnified in the hearts of your people. How deserving you are that we should long for you and desire you and, and, and plead with you, Lord God, to be present with us, to stir our souls up in, 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 in just gratefulness and in awe in love and in devotion, you have done a remarkable thing through your Son. Christ, how worthy you are, perfect servant, to receive the praise of your people. We live because you died. We are forgiven because you paid the debt of our sin. We have the hope of eternal life because of your resurrection from the dead. Our sins, which were many, have been atoned for because of your willingness to suffer the penalty of our sins on our behalf. How in awe we ought to be no matter how many times we hear this, no matter how many times we read this text, how we ought to be in awe that the Holy God, the Holy One of Israel, that the Son of God, the Anointed Perfect One, would come and endure the wrath of sin so that we could be delivered. That should never grow old to us. Lord, forgive us when the wonder of the gospel rests lightly upon our hearts. Forgive us when the glory of Christ does not move us like it should. Forgive us, Lord God, and refresh us and renew us 
and revive our hearts. I pray that as we look at this text tonight, God, you will just magnify Christ before us, that we would have a new and greater vision of our Savior King. Thank you for just this time we have tonight and for, Lord God, the penetrating and transforming power of your word. I pray that you would grant me, Lord God, the unction of your spirit to teach these words with joy and with gladness to proclaim the excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ. I prayed in his name. Amen. You know, beloved, this is the, the, the fourth, and it's the final of the servant songs in Isaiah, right? Four servant songs in Isaiah. And it is easily the most gripping of them all. It is easily the most captivating of them all, right? You remember that throughout Isaiah, God is making these wonderful promises of redemption, these wonderful promises of salvation and restoration, this promise of a new holiness and a righteousness among his people, right? Promises that far exceed any anticipated deliverance from Babylonian captivity, right? But the question that's still in the air when we come to this song, the, the question that still has to be answered is how? How is this going to be accomplished? How is this going to take place? How is God going to accomplish this incredible redemption of his people? And the answer is found right here. It's found right here in this last song of the servant. He is the key to it all. All the promises of God coalesce in the servant of the Lord, right? The glory, the greatness of the servant of the Lord is found in his willingness to stand in the gap for sinners, to offer himself for the redemption of sinners, to live as we should have lived, to die as we deserve to die, to suffer for the transgressions, for our transgressions in a way that is almost incomprehensible to us, to rise from the dead incorruptible so that we could share in the reward that he wins, right? As if we'd earned it ourselves. And that's incomparable grace. Charles Spurgeon talked about this text and he said, he called this text the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. The Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. Man, he was right. These are some of the richest words in the whole Bible. And it begins with this, I love it, it's this prologue, this testimony of God the Father to the greatness of his servant, right? Look at it with me again. Look at verses 13 through 15 in chapter 52 once more. And we read here the Lord's personal testimony to his servant. Look at what he says again. He says, behold, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. 
The very beginning of this is divine praise for the servant, right? It is God the Father testifying to the glory of his Son. And it begins here with a now familiar word in Isaiah, right? Behold. We read that so many times, right? And the point is this, like, hey, listen up. Look, think about this, perceive what you're about to hear, focus your attention on this, regard what I am about to say as it ought to be regarded. My servant, my servant in contrast to to Israel and to Judah and to every other human being that's ever been born into this world, my servant, he shall act wisely. Or another word for that is, is he will prosper. And the idea is here that, that he will be obedient to, to the, the divine commands and the calling that's laid upon him in a way that far exceeds any servant of God ever in history. That's the idea. He will do, he will do God's will perfectly. And he will prosper in everything that God has given him to do. And so what the Lord is doing here is he's introducing, you know, this final servant song. What he's doing here is he's declaring the glory and the majesty of his son. He's declaring his universal worth and his greatness and his impact that he will have on the entire world. And the Lord says about him, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. In other words, he will receive the honor and he will receive the praise and he will receive the exaltation and the glory that he has earned and that he deserves. He's making clear that though he will be a suffering servant, he will in the end be exalted as he should. And he'll receive the praise that belongs to him. And I want us to see this because this is really important, right? We know that the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, right? We know that intrinsically, right, he deserves all glory because of his nature, because of his character, right? He deserves all glory. He deserves all praise, right? But what we're to see in this servant song is that he earned that glory too. He earned that glory. In other words, listen, that's the very reason why it is so offensive, why it's so off-putting, why it is so deserving of condemnation whenever people say foolish and reductionist things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because not only does, does he, is he intrinsically worthy of glory, man, he has earned it. How so? How has he earned it? Well, verses 14 and 15 give us insight into what's going to be required of him, right? To redeem a fallen and a wretched and a sin-wrecked people. And it's not anything easy. The many, the many will be astonished. That is, they'll be awestruck. They will be amazed. But even more than that, they'll be aghast. They'll be appalled. They'll be appalled by his appearance. He would be so marred beyond human semblance, right? It's a picture of what he would have to endure in order to redeem us, the disfigurement, not only of his face, but the brutality of the entire suffering that he endured. And yet through this suffering, right, which would be a spectacle to mankind, many people from many nations would be sprinkled. They'll be cleansed. They'll be made righteous in the eyes of God. Their sins will be covered. Their sins atoned for. And who he is and the way he lives and the way that he dies 
and what he accomplishes in his death and through his resurrection, what he is and what he has done will shut the mouths of kings and those that the world esteems as powerful. In fact, they'll be rendered speechless by him. By what he's done. He will do such a work of redemption. He will accomplish such a victory, the likes of which they had never been told or heard. And because the servant's work will encompass far more than the redemption of the elect in Israel, but the elect from every nation. In fact, he'll create a kingdom that is so vast and so glorious and so awesome that it far outstrips and renders insignificant every kingdom of the earth, no matter how great it may have been at one time. Nations will fall before him in adoration. Horror will be replaced by wonder and worship. And eventually, all of this would be revealed. Not in a way that man could imagine, but it would be revealed. But before his glory comes to full fruition, right? The servant must be met with the ignorance and the rejection of man. This grand song, right? After the Father's prelude and his testimony, this grand song begins with human ignorance, with sinful blindness, and the consequent rejection that the servant faced from the fallen world of sinners. We move from God's testimony now to Isaiah's, right? Prophetically describing the rejection that Christ faced. And look at these first three verses with me again. Look what he says. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Isaiah begins here in verse 1 with a couple of rhetorical questions. It's almost a lament, really. Speaking on behalf of all the faithful prophets of God, he acknowledges that their words had been largely ignored and misunderstood. That, that God's truth hadn't weighed on the hearts of the people as it should. He laments that when the Lord Jesus Christ, the true servant of God, appeared. And again, Isaiah is speaking prophetically, right? But he laments that, that when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared that the spiritual deadness of Israel and of all the people rendered them blind to his true glory. That the Son of Man came into the world, the arm of the Lord, the very strength and power and might of God, right? And yet very few believed or understood who he was. Fallen mankind as a whole is clueless. But the Lord saw him. 
the father saw him. And he saw him as a young plant and a root out of dry ground. And beloved, that description points to the significant difference between the Lord Jesus Christ and everybody else. Everyone else was a branch fit to be burned. And here he is, this young plant, a picture of life arising out of dry and foul ground. The spiritual condition of Israel was, was lacking in life. It was lacking in vitality. And yet, by contrast, here is Jesus in the midst of this deadness as the very picture of life. Before the Lord, the servant was always well-pleasing, right? And yet the assessment of man, fallen man, was a completely different story. And it speaks to the blindness of our depravity, doesn't it? Isaiah describes fallen mankind's perception, and, and in a word, they're unimpressed. We not, nobody saw anything that the world values. Christ lacked the superficial beauty that so often captures our attention, right? They evaluated him after the flesh. In evaluating him after the flesh, there was nothing that was outwardly there to attract the attention of fallen man. And you know what? When you think about it, it's really astonishing, isn't it? I want you to think about it for a moment. The sinful humanity of Christ today was only so happy to enjoy his miracles, weren't they? And they, they you know, they were... They were glad to take advantage of his mercy. They were glad to take advantage of his goodness. But even that was insincere and short-lived. This one of perfect righteousness and love and, and, and wisdom and knowledge, he was examined by mankind, evaluated according to our astute wisdom, and found insignificant. And he was despised and rejected. He was treated with contempt and disdain. He wasn't taken seriously by the world of sinners. His teaching, his miracles, all well enough and good, perhaps food for conversation, but he wasn't given the gravity he deserves. He wasn't esteemed. And for his part, the Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I don't want us to have the wrong picture there. It's not like Jesus never smiled, right? Or that he was always, you know, downcast all the time, absent any joy. That's, that's not the idea here. But what it is getting at is this. What it's saying to us is that the weight of human sin and the corruption of the human soul and the sorrow of the great chasm between the holy God and sinful man and the fate of, of sinners rested on the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that it didn't rest on any other. He was deadly earnest, Christ was, about the fallen state of sinners and about God's just judgment on rebel lawbreakers and God-rejectors. He was intense in his words of truth. Jesus wasn't an entertainer. He was a preacher. 
He was sober-minded in his judgments. He was oh so serious in his ministry. And by the sinful world, he was rejected. And again, that rejection to the Lord Jesus Christ says absolutely nothing about his true glory and everything about the comprehensive and radical depravity of fallen humanity, doesn't it? then praise God we come to verse 4. And Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Beloved, I want you to see something here. This is the verse right here that is the hinge on which unbelief turns to faith. Okay, follow with me when I say this. Follow with me. Let me explain what I mean. The unbeliever, right, The unbeliever characteristically sees Jesus as the one who is stricken and smitten by God and who died in humiliation for his own sins, right? For his own transgressions. That he was struck down by God for his own misdeeds or or because he led an insurrection, right? Conservative mouthpiece and lost man Ben Shapiro will tell you that. Or, or because of blasphemy for claiming to be God incarnate, or even just because he was a victim of fate, right? Those are the opinions and the options of our own day. But the eyes of faith, eyes that have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, eyes that have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, they see the truth, man. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he has suffered what we deserve, what we should face. That's plain to those who have had their eyes open to see the truth, that this rejected servant is the only one who can save our souls. Yes, among fallen men, Jesus is is undistinguished and unimpressive and rejected and shamed, but to those whose eyes are opened to see their own need, to see his glory as Savior, beloved, we see him as he is, don't we? That he's the Holy One of God who came into this world for the sake of sinners and nothing else but his humiliation and his suffering and his death is sufficient to rescue sinners bound by their sin. He is the servant who suffers to save. Look at it. Pick it up in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence." And there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Those verses, beloved, right there, they describe the very heart of Christianity, right? This is the very heart of what we confess as the people of God. This is the very heart of the gospel, penal, substitutionary atonement. Christ suffered the penalty that our sins deserve. He did it in our place as our representative and as our substitute. And he did it to bring us to God. And that's the confession that every Christian makes, isn't it? That's the one that every one of us must make. My sins in my place to bring me to God. Just look at those phrases again. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. I want you to see this. Look, the Lord Jesus Christ was not crucified in the abstract. He was pierced through and crucified for our actual offenses. For the actual sins that we've committed. For the very things that we have done, being rebels against God and His holy and good authority, rebelling against His good law, making ourselves our own authority and our own master and pursuing our own sinful desires and completely disregarding His holiness and His glory as Lord and as master and His authority over all. Think about it. The litany of our offenses against the holy God. Could we ever number them all? Could we ever number them all? We don't even know the depth of our sin. If we were to sit down and, and try to write down every sin we've ever committed, and if God granted us total recall of every sin we are aware we, are, we have committed, can I tell you what? There would be a host of which we were completely unaware. We didn't even know they were sin when we committed them. For that, Christ was pierced. He's crushed for our iniquities. The idea there is shattered and broken for our actual guilt, for our perversity, for our depravity. He suffered the, the, the chastisement through which we could be reconciled to God. The reproof, the judgment, the wrath that our sins deserved, he endured so that we could receive peace with God. The wounds, the blows, the stripes that we deserve, they all fell on him. He interposed himself between us and the wrath of God. And the Lord laid on him for our sake, for the sake of, and this is what this word means, the Lord has laid on him. That's what this phrase means. Listen, for the sake of interceding for and entreating us. For the sake of Interceding for and entreating us, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of everybody who's been saved. Again, it's not for sin in general. It's not for sin in the abstract. It's not even for the sin of the great mass of sinners. It is for my very own sins, for your very own sins, that the Lord Jesus Christ was pierced and crushed and chastised and wounded. There's an old Scottish preacher, Alexander White. I've quoted him before. I want to quote him again tonight. He asks in one of his sermons these, this question, these questions. He says, speaking of the Lord Jesus, 
Does he bear in his body any marks of yours? Does he bear in his body any marks of yours? Have you made it impossible for him to say, I never knew you for all the marks and the scars that you have put upon him when you laid your sins on him one by one? Are there no wounds in his flesh that no sins but yours could have put there? It's for our sake that he suffered and died. And he didn't shrink back. Isaiah says here he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't attempt to vindicate himself. He didn't attempt to to defend or deliver himself, though he was unjustly accused and unjustly tried, oppressed and afflicted. There was no self-justification in him, right? No interest in delivering himself. He didn't open up his own mouth in his defense. And here's why. Because the Lord Jesus Christ had no interest in saving himself, but in saving us. He had no interest in preserving himself, but protecting us. He had no interest in delivering himself, but delivering us. No interest in rescuing himself, but rescuing us. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And Isaiah says, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? Who really got it? Who really understood that he was cut off from the land of the living, cut off from the life and the blessing of God, stricken for the transgression of his people? Nobody thought about it. Nobody considered it. Nobody pondered it like they should. Nobody really understood it. He was thoroughly innocent. He was absent any violence and absent any deceit, and yet he was killed. He died as a substitute for sinners, and he would have been thrown in a common grave, but for the intervention according to the plan of the Father by which he was taken and buried in the tomb of a rich man. This is all that Christ had to endure for us to be saved. And yet, Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. That is a sobering statement. But it's also a wonderful one. It was the Father's will to crush him. And we've got to see that. Look, beloved, the Father's love for sinners who deserve destruction and wrath, you and me, is revealed to us in the most astonishing way way possible through the crushing of his own son in our place. The Father 
crushed his son, his only begotten son, out of a heart of compassionate and pursuing love for sinners like you and me who didn't love him. And it was the only one that we could only way that we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to the holy God. People talk a lot of trash about God these days. They talk a lot of foolish, ignorant trash. And they rail against the apparent lack of love God has for the world of sinners. And yet God's love, His redeeming love is so great that He would crush His own perfect Son for corrupt and wretched sinners like us. Should we not be overawed and astonished and amazed and overwhelmed by that kind of love? And the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? For the joy that was set before him, the writer of Hebrews says, endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He willingly gave himself up as our sacrifice in anticipation of the joy that was set before him. The joy of of an eternity spent with the Father and with the multitude of worshipers that he would redeem. And I think about I think about the tawdry things that when people complain against God, the, the, the root of their, you know, discontent with Him. This world that would, you know, just as soon receive from God little trinkets, a new house or a new car or a new smartphone or The removal of all troubles and the promise of being happy and successful and satisfied in this life and the desire to be important or, or influential. And yet God, who won't settle for anything less than the salvation of sinners, offers the glorious gift of His Son, wounded, for our transgressions, smitten by God and afflicted, crushed for our iniquities so that we could have peace with God and be restored to His favor. And for that, for everything He's done, the Lord Jesus Christ is high and lifted up and exalted. In fact, look at this. I love so much the end of this song. 
in the triumph of the servant. This is so good. It's God singing again, right? It's God speaking again. Isaiah, Isaiah records, starting the second half of verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I want you to see, beloved, just look at this with me, how all these wonderful phrases come together to describe the triumph of the servant. It's awesome, right? When Christ makes an offering for the guilt of his people's sin, it's out of the anguish of his soul, he says, that he shall see his offspring. He'll see those that have been saved by his powerful work of redemption, right? He will see his people whom he has saved by his blood come to faith in him. Well, how? How will he see? Here's why. Because he'll be raised from the dead. He'll be raised from the grave to live forever. The Father will prolong his days. That's a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew, you know, turn of phrase, a figure of speech, a way of saying that Christ will have length of days. And in this case, eternal days, right? He's conquered death and he'll never die again. And he'll see his redeemed people, those souls for whom he has won eternal life, and he will be fully satisfied in them. He'll be fully pleased. He'll be fully delighted. You and I will please the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll take great pleasure in seeing the fruit of his sacrifice in the untold multitudes who have and who will come to him in faith. And here's why. Because by his knowledge, he shall make many to be accounted righteous and bear their iniquities. What does that mean? It just points to this. It points to Christ's willingness to redeem sinners at the cost of his blood. He knew what it would take. He knew what it would require of him. And he did it willingly in the glad and certain knowledge that his sacrifice would save a great assembly of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He knew he would take up his life again forever to enjoy the reward of his sufferings and to receive from his offspring their glad acclaim. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But there's more. There's more here. The Lord says, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God's great purposes, his eternal plan, will triumph, will come to fruition through his authority and power from his place of exaltation at the right hand of the Father, the place of all authority and power, the place of sovereign majesty. Christ takes the scroll of history and unfolds it to its completion. Who can take the scroll, right? All of God's purposes in the plan of salvation will succeed. In his places, sovereign king, he will ensure that his kingdom grows as the gospel is preached in the power of the spirit and souls are saved until the day when he returns to consummate his kingdom and to put his enemies once and for all under his feet and to be marveled at by those who have believed his gospel. All of this is in the hands of our living and reigning Lord, God's perfect servant. And then in verse 12, we see that Christ's glorious work will be rewarded, but he won't hoard it to himself. I mean, how, how remarkable is this, right? 
It would be enough if Christ redeemed us and gave us nothing else, right? That would be enough. That'd be gloriously enough, right? But we see here that, that Christ's glorious work is, is rewarded with the picture of divided spoil, right? That's the picture of the blessings of triumph, like a warrior that's laden with spoil. After the, after the victory, Christ then shares the riches of his victory with the many, with his people, and with the strong. Not those that are strong in themselves, but those who have been made strong out of weakness through faith in him, right? Let the weak say, I am strong. He divides the spoil. He pours out his blessing upon his people. He does it day by day, and he delights to do it. Not only is he a victor for us, we are victors with him in his triumph over sin and over hell and over the devil and over, the, over death. And he delights for us to share in his victory. He poured out his soul unto death. He took his place among the transgressors so that he could bear the sins of many. And he rose again he, to continue to make intercession for us. In other words, as long as he lives, and he lives forever, his sacrifice is sufficient for all our sins. And his intercession sufficient for our preservation. Behold God's servant. Behold God's servant. This is the Savior, the Lord, and the Christ who is dead and is alive and is victorious forever. His is the glory and the majesty. And it, this is the compelling vision of Christ, beloved, that needs to capture our hearts and our minds and our lives once more and hold primacy in our hearts. Every one of us, me included. Let's pray. Lord, how glorious to behold the glory of your true servant, our Savior, our Lord, our King, Lord Jesus. how our hearts, Lord, need to be reawakened to the awesomeness and the wonder of the gospel that centers in Christ. How we need to be freshly moved to praise to thanksgiving, to astonished wonder. How we need to be moved, freshly moved, to devotion and obedience, to praying and obeying. Lord, I pray that you would make this vision of Christ to rest on our souls with real weight. I pray that you would expand our vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would make clear our focus. 
I pray, Lord God, that you would, Lord, you would do a work in us, fresh and anew. Lord God, if, if revival is the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the just the renewal of a vision of Christ's glory that is both seen and experienced and savored. That God grant us a revival like that. Move our hearts to be all in with Christ. Lord, we love you. We are thankful for your word that is the truth. It is life-giving truth. And I pray your word. Lord God, I pray it would penetrate our hearts and bring forth real fruitfulness in us. Lord, I pray now that as we draw near to you in prayer, as we bring our souls and present ourselves before you. Father, you would lead us by your spirit to pray as we should. As you would have us pray, knowing, Lord God, that you delight to answer the prayers of your people. So make us to pray those very things that, Lord, you want to respond to, that you want to give. And let us pray in boldness and in sincerity and in humility, praying that you will give what we so desperately need. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.